Their female-founded businesses did better and outperformed their male-founded businesses. In their top 10 companies, three of the companies had a female co-founder, which was vastly disproportionate compared to how many women they invested in. He was talking about what, how the product resonated with caterers and retailers. And at the top of the list of things that resonated, he'd put two female founders. And so it's important not to just be happy with where we are today and to keep pushing the boundaries. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We bring you insightful conversations with the UK's top entrepreneurs so you can become more successful while dining on stories you won't hear anywhere else. Today, we're bringing you our International Women's Day live event from March 2020, which we've been saving up to mark Women's History Month. We're doing this because of the 6 million businesses in the UK, 20% are run by women. There are twice as many male entrepreneurs compared to female, and 89% of startup funding goes to male-founded teams, 10% to mixed gender, leaving just 1% for female-founded companies. Today, you'll hear from our female entrepreneurs who've done it the hard way. Tamara Lorne, co-founder of luxury travel club Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Sasha Celestial One, the co-founder of Olio, an app which lets people and businesses share leftover food to tackle the massive problem of waste. Debbie Wasco, the co-founder of Albright, a members club that helps women succeed in business and the co-founder of Love Home Swap, and Alice Bentink, the co-founder of Entrepreneur First, the UK's leading startup incubator, which helps co-founders find each other and build great businesses. We begin by uncovering the toughest career challenges these entrepreneurs have ever faced. You can guess what was front of mind in March 2020, but it's fascinating to hear these views now with a year on hindsight. What are some of the toughest moments that you've had in your career as entrepreneurs? So um, if we can start with tomorrow. Oh, gosh, do you know what? I was going to tell you all about the year we closed down our Australia office and you know made a great mistake there had to let 15 great people go. But I'm telling you now, I have never faced a bigger challenge in my business than I'm facing today with the coronavirus. Travel is the worst hit. We have gone from a fantastic growth year where we were planning to, you know, we're launching a huge partnership with IHG. We have an incredible team to grow the business. We're tracking 25% up in January and we're now 60% down. I'm going to have to let people go. You know, it's going to be tough. And, uh, you know, we know that what's facing us ahead is uh, is a really hard ride. So, you know, we'll be okay. I've done, I've been through recessions in the past, but uh, we will come out fighting and... When we come out, there will be fewer of our competitors around. Yeah. As, someone, as someone who's living in the moment of this experience, strong. you yeah. know, what kind of emotions, having, like you say, you've gone through it before, so it's not like a first-time freak-out, but what are some of the emotions you're facing? Uh, so, I mean, great sadness because, you know, all the plans, all the great stuff we were doing this year is just put on pause. And I look at the team and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, we are looking at where we can cut costs and where we can cut travel. And where... But, you know, on the, on the flip side, you know, what is incredible is how it brings a team together. But even in the last 48 hours, you know, with our trading meeting on Tuesday, you know, the team just rallied round. We've got some incredibly creative ideas of you know, how we are going to uh, get some travel bookings, how we're going to look at the business differently and what we're going to do. And that's come from a team who are just so invested. 
A friend of mine said at the beginning of the week, you know, when the tide goes out, you can tell who is swimming without trunks. <laughs> I have my trunks firmly on, <laughs> and uh, we'll get through it. So the, it, out of this comes great opportunity as well for us. And, you know, when, when this thing goes away and people start travelling again, we'll be there and uh, we'll be stronger than ever. But it's really hard. And, and, you know, lots of businesses will face these kind of mm. problems throughout their life cycle. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, it made me think, is that something that's been a problem for Olio then at the moment? We have <coughs> definitely, because neighbours meet on the doorstep face-to-face and we've got thousands of volunteers collecting food and distributing it, we have had to issue advice on it, but it hasn't been a problem so far. So your toughest moment? It's a little difficult to articulate, but bear with me one minute. Um, so we've built a platform. So there's, you know, a third of all food globally goes to waste. And in the UK, 71% of that food takes place in our homes. And three quarters of it is edible when it's thrown away. It's the third largest contributor to the climate crisis, and it's completely immoral because we have millions and millions of people living in food poverty. So we are faced with some really stark facts, and everyone you introduce Olio to says, that is a brilliant idea. Why didn't that exist already? This is amazing. The world would be a better place if everyone shared their surplus food with those people nearby who will eat it. Whether they need it or they want it, it doesn't matter. So people are completely besotted with the idea but we face a really, really difficult challenge in getting people to behave in the way that they want the world to be. And when you're facing a climate crisis that is so black and white, and you know that, for example, 60% of greenhouse gas emissions come from the behaviors and actions that we take within our home, and that you're facing this massive discrepancy between action and awareness, it's really depressing. And I'm like totally immersed in the world of... Extinction Rebellion and climate crisis and, you know, what is going on. And there's this big, huge gap in collective denial that I see every single day. And we have tried everything under the sun to to change and mobilize mainstream consumers to think about the resources they have in their home, food or otherwise, in a smarter, more environmentally efficient way. There's no silver bullet. And so for me, the challenge is, like, feeling... Every day waking up with a new set of brainstorm ideas, a new hope, basically, that together we can really change the way collectively as a society we value our resources and the way we, the way we behave, behave. But not having yet cracked that can be a bit discouraging sometimes. Even though when you do share your food, it's collected in a matter of minutes. The hardest part for us is to get people. That's the irony. There's so much going to waste but then what we have is a shortage of surplus on the platform. Mm. I mean, I take so many photos, I might as well take them of my fridge. So <laughs> makes sense. Some people just do do that. <laughs> fridge. Um, okay, so Debbie, um, what about you? Toughest challenge? Let's be honest. If this is the path that you've chosen, you have them every single day, three or four times a day. And I think that's something that's really important to talk about and to this audience of, of awesome women who are out there that... You have to be realistic about what the life is like. It is not just a roller coaster. Things go wrong all day, every day, in different ways. And whatever the business is, Tamara and I have known each other for something terrifying, like 25 years, but we were just discussing when we got here, and she was saying travel's a nightmare right now. And, and, and of course, you know, there's a certain set of circumstances around that. But 
you know, when I had a travel business, I had a load of different issues from the sublime to the ridiculous. When people are sharing other people's homes, so much stuff goes wrong all, all the time. Uh, now I'm accidentally in the hospitality industry. Well, that wasn't really the plan. And I sort of turned myself into a mini Nick Jones without really thinking about it. And we have all sorts of stuff from the quality of the coffee through to handling loads of amazing, incredible, and indeed high maintenance women in our building <laughs> all, all day long, right? So there's just a lot of stuff. I think the thing that it's really important to be prepared for and, and that you do get a bit more used to, and I'm very aware of this with my fantastic business partner for whom this is her first uh, experience in running away to join the circus, as I describe it to her, is the way that you lurch, frankly, between different funding crises. I mean, that is just life. And it doesn't, ostensibly on paper, Albright has raised a lot of money. It also costs a lot of money to, to build and to run our clubs. And you absolutely have to have the stomach for, and a lot of it comes with experience, the fact that you are generally always six months away from running out of money, like you really are. And that takes a particular sort of personality type. It's a real lens to how you have to hire. You know, exactly as Tam was describing, it, it's really important in your team that they've got the stomach for it. And that sense in which you develop the stomach for it, you have to hire for stomach and you've got to support and encourage and cheerlead your people through really difficult times is important. And there's lots of big questions around transparency, you know, which is a separate topic. How transparent are you as a leader in a time of crisis? You know, how much are you telling your team or not telling your team? You're asking everybody to pull together through coronavirus or whatever the issue is. But ultimately, that sense in which you're quite close to running out of money sits with you and you alone, and, and all of us have that. And it doesn't matter how long you've been at it, right? And, and I think if I were to highlight any one particular aspect of this funny life, it's that, which is if you start out on a high-growth track that requires capital, you will almost always be nearly running out of it. We'll come on to funding, actually, shortly, because I think it's such an important topic. And before we do, uh, what has been your toughest moment, Alice? I mean, just to echo what Debbie said, I mean, every, every day is just really hard. And I think um, for some people, that's a really exciting challenge because you're always on the edge of your knowledge base, on your skill base. You just have to learn so fast. And there's lots of things that really scare me right now, but I also know that there's lots of things that I can work hard enough, push the team in the right direction. We can try and tackle some of those things. I think the bit that I hated most was actually the early days where... There was this sort of existential dread that maybe we were wasting our time. So um, one of the big sort of innovations behind Entrepreneur First was that you could put strangers in a room and they would form co-founding relationships that would last them the five, ten years it takes to build and exit a business. Everyone was like, cool, great idea, not possible, uh, do something else. I'm like, no, 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 we'll make it work. And the weird thing was, the first cohort, we put 30 people in a room. We sort of sat back. We were always about two months away from running out of money at that point. And it worked. And it was amazing. And, you know, for that cohort, one of the companies sold for $100 million. Two went to Y Combinator. We're like, this is piss easy. <laughs> Second cohort, we did the same thing. This time, we put 50 people in a room together. Nothing happened. It literally didn't work. And at this point, we'd been working on the business for two years. Again, very, very close to running out of money. We had no business model. 
And I remember there was a moment where we'd tried this team building thing where we'd literally just put people in teams and then they'd be like, but I don't want to work with this person. And be like, no, 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 you do. Um, <laughs> and then as you can imagine, there was a point where they're like, no, no, we're not working together. And there was a moment where all the teams broke up and me and my co-founder Matt basically went for a walk around the block to talk about like how we'd screwed up our careers and like how this was a massive mistake. And, and by the time we got back, they'd actually sort of rejigged themselves into new teams that were much, much better. But those first kind of early years, our difficult second album, our difficult second cohort, <laughs> the kind of existential dread that maybe we'd just wasted two years of our life on something that didn't work. Um, and I suppose two kind of takeaways from that. One is, now I've seen so many founder journeys, the trough of despair is real. You know, you start on this high of like, it's an amazing idea. Everyone's like, yes, it's an amazing idea. And then you actually try and make it happen. And it's really, really hard. Um, and that trough of despair, if you can get through that, the other side is much shinier, even though it's still hard. I think the second thing is having a co-founder. I don't think I would have got through it without Matt. Um, I don't think he would have got through it without me. You need somebody who, at any one point, if one of you is on kind of deep, deep pessimism, um, you need somebody who can be like, it'll be okay, and keep you going for the next day. So um, I would strongly encourage thinking about getting a co-founder for your business. Next, I asked our guests about fundraising. What have they learned about winning in such a male-dominated space? And how do you grow a company that has ambitions of attracting a billion users? All that after this quick break. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. 
You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. Okay, so I said we were going to come on to it. And um, seeing as you're already in flow, you're the perfect place to start. So let's talk about funding. So it's hard for a white middle-class bearded with glasses. I mean, all the stereotypes. It's, it's hard enough for me to raise money, so, um, but you're literally giving it away. So talk to us about, talk to us about uh, the funding journey. What, do you, uh, what have you seen in your particular struggles? And also, mm -hmm. as a venture capitalist, someone who's investing in other people, what is the difference when people are pitching you in whether they get the money or they don't? Gosh, there's a lot to, a lot to unpack in that. So, um... One word. <laughs> so if you want to build a high growth business, and I, I suppose one of the things that I would say is that we probably see more women shy away from taking on VC funding than we do their male peers. VC funding isn't always sunshine and rainbows. There are some definite downsides. If you decide to take VC funding, you are choosing to go on a path where it's boom or bust, as in you'll be pushed to run out of money in six months. You'll be pushed to grow the business that feels at a pretty uncomfortable rate. But the potential returns in the long term could be much, much bigger than a bootstrap business, for example. So I suppose my first sort of thing is we actually don't see as many women come to EF for funding as we do uh, their male peers. Um, so we're at about between 25 and 30% women for each cohort. We fund at a kind of similar ratio. But generally, I would love to see more women thinking about, okay, I have this idea. How can I make it a globally important sort of world-changing idea rather than something that's more locally based, often what's called a lifestyle business, which I think is a complete misnomer. No business is a lifestyle business. <laughs> Running a business is always a terrible, terrible lifestyle, mm. but a great thing to do with your life. <laughs> so I suppose, number one, is I'd love to see more, more women doing that. I suppose just a bit of our, how we think about funding at EF. One of the key things we look for, because we're investing so early stage, is we're investing in the team. And actually, if you speak to any seed investor, we, we invest pre-seed, but if you speak to any seed investor, what they're interested in is the team. So they're looking at you and your co-founder. And so one of the things that we're really interested in is actually not the idea so much. Often, early stage ideas are a bit ropey. And often, when they uh, start speaking to customers, the plan, the idea changes hugely. And you see between seed and series A, just when you need product market fit, ideas do a sort of massive change of either uh, not necessarily market, but definitely maybe the problem that it's solving and, and a refinement of that. So really what early stage investors are, are backing are you and your co-founder. Do they believe that you can be productive? So for us, one of the things we love is when we see week on week, a team surprises us. So they say they're going to do one thing. Maybe they end up doing something different, but they have a really interesting reason as to why they got there. They learn something interesting about their customer. They tell you something surprising, something that makes you go, huh, I thought I understood this problem, but actually you're becoming a real expert in this problem. So when we look at uh, investing, we're really looking at how good is this team, how productive are they, and how can they surprise us in a kind of um, regular fashion? That's a very comprehensive answer, thank you. So, um, Sasha, I'm going to start with you then. And the reason is because one of the most common questions I get asked when I tell people how great Olio is, is well, how on earth do they make money? And then I'm like, I can't remember. So <laughs> tell everyone. 
not on funding, just how well, actually, what is the yeah, business but, model? Oh, yeah, I mean, all, all, right. all parts of it. It depends really on the audience um, what our business model is a little bit. And that, that does actually come to the heart of sort of our fundraising yeah. um, strategy and challenges. So we've raised 10.7 million pounds over the last four years, and now we have a team of 30. And our business model right now is a B2B business model. So we've got 7,000 food safety trained volunteers who collect thousands of times each week from big brand name retailers, from Tesco to Pret to Selfridges, who pay us to recruit, train, and manage the volunteers and to govern the system in which they collect the unsold food, take it home, add it to the app, and redistribute the food to the local community. And then we can report back with all of the impact and help them achieve their zero um, their zero food waste pledges that they've all publicly made. So that's a B2B service that's growing very fast. I've got a team of 12 who's focused on that, just hired a head of sales. And um, interestingly, you're going to come on to it later, but I was going through a head of sales. It's his first 100 days. We're reporting to the board next week. And he was talking about what the product, how the product resonated with um, caterers and retailers. And at the top of the list of things that resonated, he'd put two female founders and I said, why is that there? That can't be their number one selling point. You've got to put it at the bottom, and please explain to me. And he basically, went, it's a bit of a side note, but he said customers or clients are looking to have, to have their suppliers diversified. And the fact that we're a female-founded team is actually helping them to meet their internal diversity and, and gender and other quotas that they've set. So as a side note, I think that's a pretty positive sign. So that's how we're monetizing right now. Um, but the, the real heart of what we're after is, you know, a billion people using Olio in the next 10 years as the rails of redistribution for food and other resources in the community. And I don't need to, I mean, it's not hard to imagine how a billion people using a platform, even though it's all for free, um, can be um, a profitable organization. Um, we've looked, worked through freemium models. We've worked through every which model, um, and there's a lot of different ways that you can you can monetize that. And um, it's actually every time we go through a new round of fundraising, I look at the old model, and I'm like, what the f did we? Like I remember last time, I was like, what is e-commerce, and why is it worth 17 million dollars in 2019? Hmm. I had to like go back and be like, oh yeah, we're going to have a store. We're going to have all the sustainable products in it. We're going to cut, you know. So really, I think as long as you've got, um, we're solving a really, 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 really big problem. Mm. Food waste is worth $1.2 trillion a year. Tessa and I, between us, have 30, I don't know, 40 years of experience. So if you're betting on who's going to solve this problem, I think that we're a fair bet. Um, and I think investors just want to see that you've thought about it and that you believe the opportunity is massive. And I think there's a lot of understanding that things will change and evolve as as you learn more, as you move from early adopters to the mainstream. But yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I haven't figured out how to answer succinctly. And as uh, two female founders going in and fundraising, mm. did you get the usual pushback complication or because you're solving such an enormous problem and you both had finance backgrounds, was it different? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, fundraising sucks. It absolutely sucks. And my co-founder spends it. Unless least. Unless you pitch Alice. She's literally giving it away. <laughs> it, so. Yeah. I mean, she spends 50% of her time fundraising all year long. Um, and it's that, it's that type of job. Um, and someone needs, you have, to think that you're going to raise successfully the capital you need to grow without being that devoted, I think, is, is relatively a little bit naive. Anyway, so just wanted, a lot of people underestimate how much time it takes to fundraise, is yeah. all I'm saying. Um, what we've discovered is that pitching to female to women with check writing capabilities results in a much higher conversion for us. And I don't necessarily think it's because it's female to female sale. I think there is a lot of 
generally women in charge are in charge of the household budget still, and they're in charge of the kitchen, and they're in charge of food. And without being too sort of stereo, stere- too much stereotyping, we do see that it's a product that male investors have real difficulty relating to. They don't shop. They certainly don't deal with the surplus or the waste that's left over in their home. So they just can't relate. Um, whereas women tend to just relate much more on a sort of, I don't know, a personal relatable level. And I think until, I think when you've got a product that might be tailored at one gender or the other, it's quite difficult to break through and cut through the other gender if they can't relate to it in a lot of ways. You know, if you're thinking about feminine products, you know, target at feminine hygiene or things that are truly female or you know, it's, it's a really hard thing to relate to. I have a hard time relating to anything to do with sports. Like, I would never invest in a sports company. You could tell me all the data in the world and I'd just stare at you. Yeah, so it's quite interesting with two people with experience in travel then. So men and women can relate to travel. So is there, you know, is, did you find the same or is it just like, it doesn't matter, it's still like 10 times harder? Tomorrow, start. So we've had a quite unusual funding journey. And um, uh, a year ago, we raised $6 million through Crowdcube, so crowdfunding. And I have to say, it didn't suck as much as <laughs> other fundraising. And, you know, thank, you know it's, it's put us in a real, really good place because, you know, we'll be okay through this, this crisis. It was a lot of hard work, but pitching it to a crowd that we know, we know well, we know our members, was so much easier because we could speak to them as we do normally. And so it was actually a very pleasant, if hard work, experience, but, you know, something I really enjoyed. I was on the end of every single email request, you know, the, the, uh, the forums where they ask questions. And actually, I really loved having that interaction with people who were interested in us as a business, but also as, as members or customers. It's an unusual mm. uh, funding journey, but cer- certainly, you know, can be done. And Debbie, like, I'm just, you know, making, I'm projecting an assumption here, but like, if I wrote checks, I wouldn't say no to you. I'd be terrified to. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, ass- I'm, you, I'm assuming it just wasn't as hard, but you know, you, you educate us, was it? Well, look, it's always hard. You know, what's the lens with the Albright? You know, it's really interesting to hear you talk about selling female products to men. Well, Albright is for women, it's not for men. Mm. But we require a lot of capital, and that comes from men. So we had to very quickly work out how to pitch it to enlightened men. And the journey for us was at the beginning of founding Albright, so two and a half years ago, we had this very high-octane objective that 50% of any of the capital that we raise will come from female investors. I mean, forget it. We would have funded the loo in one of the buildings. <laughs> like, just, just no, no. So we really had to work out what the angle was. And this is a really ongoing challenge for us. And Albright's a, a complicated beast because it isn't pure tech. So it doesn't VC very well. It isn't a private equity lift and shift like a restaurant chain or retailers, because there's quite a big barrier to entry, which is membership. So we raised the first three million, you know, very, very quickly because it primarily came from people who had backed me before. We get told no all the time. I mean, we really do. We did two, you know, pitches on conference call to New York today with people who just didn't get it, like really didn't get it. And I cannot emphasise enough that Success doesn't necessarily beget more success. It, you know, it definitely gets your foot in the door, and I'm not underestimating it in Christ. My 26-year-old self would be you know, pretty impressed with my 46-year-old self. However, you have to be prepared for the no's. 
We get them twice a day, like every single day. And to your point, I'm the one who, the way Anna and I divide and conquer is I'm the one that does the fundraising because I've done it before. Even if we've just closed a round, I'm on it. You know, wherever I am, I'm looking for the person with money. I mean, it's really unedifying, but it's absolutely fundamental. And I think women, well, anybody who's sensible, but women, in my experience, don't really like doing it and they feel uncomfortable. You just got to park that at the door because the only way that you raise money is by asking for money and being told no 95% of the time. Remember also that there are some people here in the audience, I know, yeah, <laughs> that are just starting out as well. And your first round will probably be friends and family. Even that is quite tough, is right? Tough. I remember when we raised our friends and family round and um, one of the people who I was one of my contacts and he asked lots and lots of questions about the business and he got us back for three different meetings and we were very excited and we thought he's going to come in with a big check you know it's just super exciting and you know it, it went on for ages and ages and finally he sent us an email and said I'm going to invest a thousand pounds we have it all the time we have it all the time we something like that yesterday with a, with a with the person who, where our expectation was that they were excited about investing double-digit millions. And they were like, well, you know, I really believe in you two girls. We're always the girls. And I really back your vision. And so I'm in for £25,000. And you're like, but we've raised £25 million, So why would we take twenty five? You know, and you just, you have to be prepared for every version of all of this. I think the thing that I would say is just ask and be prepared for the no's. And that's even if you're starting out with your first SEIS round. And we were doing some sort of speed mentoring uh, beforehand. And, and the question often asked, and, and bear in mind, Albright does female founders pitch days once a month and all of the clubs and all over the world. We did it in Australia last week, in Hong Kong. You know, and a lot of that is just about getting women to ask the ask and getting women comfortable with this notion that it's A, it's okay to ask for money, B, the plan that you put in place will never be the plan that you execute on. And everyone has that. I mean, God, when we... It's the same. When you look, there's nothing worse than an old investor deck. It just makes you feel Mm -hmm. sick. Because you're right, you've built in £25 million of revenue from something that you never even properly launched. So everybody has that feeling. But I think so much of it is just about being prepared to shoulder the nose. And I think this is the first business where I've ever had a a co-founder who's just a a superstar and we're just genuinely fantastically good mates and it has changed my life in every way but not least because you need to be able to laugh I mean one of the calls we had today was just so awful that you need to be able to hang up and just look at each other and go you know and I think having that person to reflect and celebrate the victories with but also laugh at some of the absolute nonsense that you have to deal with and I think there shouldn't be any expectation that sometimes I think when you go to these panels or when you do podcasts and you tell your story and it all sounds really effortless and glossy doesn't it and a it never was to get you to where you are now but even though you are here ostensibly it doesn't stop you still get the nose all the time and it's just about how you keep going and I think a good warning, just in my experience alone, is the smaller a check, the more of a pain in the ass they'll be. That's absolutely right. And I think... Um, Always. It's and, like and we, unbelievable really, rule. We, uh, I mean, God, when we sold Love Home Swap, so the day before, 
for people who have had been through this, you have to get everyone's signature, and it's just an absolute living nightmare because ostensibly everybody knows what's happening, but inevitably you've got this crazy cap table. So it's going back sort of six or seven years with someone that you met once who gave you two thousand pounds, <laughs> but you still need them to. Yeah. And those were the people that were so painful. I remember the day before some very random person who put in five k in two thousand and ten saying. But is this deal a really good deal for the shareholders? You're like, are you kidding are you <laughs> me? <laughs> just just sign it and let me have the money. <laughs> is it really true that there's never been a better time to be a female entrepreneur? And do any of our guests suffer from imposter syndrome? Find out after this short break. Okay, so the flip side to the gender argument is that, um, and you know, some of you alluded to this already, there's actually never been a better time to be a female founder because things are improving. Sasha, you just literally pointed out that it's gone into your pitch deck. What have you guys seen developing throughout your careers with regards to this? And um, I guess I'll start with Alice. Things have definitely changed hugely. So um, I've been in the sort of entrepreneurship tech scene for eight years now. And it feels like one of the biggest shifts is how the investor community is thinking about investing in women. And um, I think this idea of the untapped economic potential of 50% of the, the population not starting businesses is really beginning to come through. And you see this being reflected in how VCs are thinking about how they compose their investment teams. More and more VCs are pushing to have at least one, um, but usually it's from a, you know, a ground uh, of having absolutely nothing, um, at least one woman on their investment committee who can actually deploy checks and capital against businesses that come through and I think it does make a difference particularly in terms of not just female-led businesses but just having a different perspective in the room full stop um, I think does help you make better better decisions there was an amazing piece by um, first round capital which is one of the sort of very first seed capital firms out in um, Silicon Valley and they did an amazing review of 10 years of data from investing in kind of 300 plus companies and, and what happened to them and one of the first things that they um, sort of highlighted in this report was that female-founded businesses, their female-founded businesses did better and outperformed their male-founded businesses. Um, and in their top 10 companies, uh, three of the companies um, had a female co-founder, which was vastly disproportionate compared to um, how many women they invested in. So there's beginning to be both an awareness that this is an opportunity, but also the data to show that this is something that, that investors should be putting their money behind. So, yeah, I feel, I feel very positive. And I, I think one of the things I do worry about a bit is that there's so much chatter around how difficult it is to raise money as a female founder, how awful it is to be a female entrepreneur, and how all the challenges. But I genuinely can't think of any career path that would have given me the opportunities that I've had at such a young age. I started EF when I was 25, um, and nobody would have allowed me to do any of the things that I'm well doing now, let alone when I was 25. And so I think for the kind of women who are looking for a challenge, a very, very steep uh, learning curve and just if you're the kind of person who is going to dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to your career and I was always a bit of a workaholic I love working really hard this sort of work-life balance thing I'm sort of less, less interested in much better to just work on something you really really love then I, I can't think of any career that gives you that opportunity other than founding your own startup so yes it's hard and I think we're making it clear that it is hard but if you're the kind of person who sat there being like oh but this sounds like the fun kind of hard I really think it's an amazing career path. And Tamara, what about you? What have you seen in your, in your industry, so to speak, with uh, the gender balance shifting? Well, so uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is 17 years old. So when I started, there, were, there was not a whiff of 
any kind of VC money specifically for female businesses. There were no female networking clubs. There were no female support groups. There was nothing. I'm supremely lucky. I have uh, you know a husband who is incredible and supportive, and you know we share in the highs and the lows. And there is absolutely no doubt that you know he values me as a female as much as you know anyone could. So it's, it's changed, but the numbers are depressing and it's constantly depressing news out there as the numbers don't shift. And so it's important not to just be happy with where we are today and to keep pushing the boundaries and keep turning up for things like that for me to talk to you about, you know, running your business, how hard it is, how great it can be, um, and to encourage people to, to start their own businesses. And that's why, you know, I'm here today. No other reason. And Sasha, you, to see Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> and Sasha, you were in finance before. So um, what, what do you think in comparing uh, that and your more recent journey? What are you seeing? Well, I, I think there is an underrepresentation across many industries, not just in the tech or consumer tech or uh, sort of startup world. Um, and I do think, at least it feels to me anecdotally that over the last three years, there's been much more interest um, from all stakeholders, whether it's government, whether it's uh, the investor community, and having a more sort of diverse, um, I guess, a diverse outcome. But I think, I can't help but wonder if it's a little bit tied to, this might just be from my own perspective, tied to the fact that women tend, on average, to start businesses that are just purely commercial in terms of their outlook. They might be trying to solve a social um, or environmental or other type of problem. And I think there's also a lot more interest in those types of problems mm. from investors. So as much as there's interest in looking at female-founded teams, there's a lot of interest um, from impact funds that are looking at businesses that aren't just solving for a commercial solution. They're also solving a really big social or environmental challenge. And I think that those two things coming together means that there's more money to also to support female-backed companies. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it so it's a converging of two trends, mm. which is to the benefit of hopefully more funding for females. And Debbie, your view is probably entirely skewed because I guess when you look up, you're like, well, I mean, every entrepreneur is female. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this, it's a fantastic part of my working life that rooms like this are the norm for me. I spoke at an event last week that was full of men in gray suits, and it had been quite a long time since I'd done that. What I would say, um, from our perspective, one of the things that counterintuitively has been the wind beneath our wings has been Me Too. Because what it has meant for us is that the topic of diversity, the topic of the way men treat women in the workplace has become front page news. And in terms of what Albright seeks to do, in terms of the stats that you started with, nobody was talking about that three years ago. They really weren't. And part of the way that we've grown Albright at such pace is through a lot of media exposure, which I don't think would have been interesting to people in the way that it has been without that additional lens. And in particular, in Los Angeles, where we opened our first club outside the States, where quite a lot of our capital comes from, that is why. This topic was a real-life topic for some of the powerful men in Hollywood who are our investors. And so part of it, I think, is, you know, every, that sort of horribly overused 
give entrepreneurs lemons, they make lemonade kind of thing, which everyone used to get wang on about after Brexit. But I think to some extent, it's about being of the zeitgeist. And I think the zeitgeist has changed and it's changed for powerful men thinking about why backing women is important. And if I look at our lead investor is a, a guy based in LA who's sort of media mogul who owns the Dodgers and the Hollywood Reporter and... I'm not sure that this would have been an agenda item for him until the last few years. And and raising capital is all about timing. And it's all about selling the dream at a time when people want to listen. And I don't think for our Albright business, we would have had an open door in the way that we have had if it weren't for Me Too and Time's Up and that whole topic around women at work being such a big deal. Now, usually we don't include audio from our Q&A session at the end of these events, but this one was too good to leave out. Do any of you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? And if, it, if you do, how do you overcome it and keep it at bay? Yes, definitely. And I think particularly when I was first starting out and I was usually the young girl pitching the old man. And I remember saying to my... Um, male co-founder once do you find in in meetings at the end of meetings people tell you oh you're really smart yeah you you kind of like you know you're surprised that you had anything interesting to say and he was like no no one ever says that to me so yeah I mean I think imposter syndrome particularly as a young woman was a large part of my um career she had an amazing meeting with um uh, a more senior woman and she was telling me about um her boss once saying to her don't you, aren't you a little bit too old to be insecure? She was 29 at the time, and I was also 29 at the time. And so now I always just have this mantra in my head of, aren't you just a little bit too old to be insecure? <laughs> and I think one of the challenges is, as a woman who sometimes suffers from imposter syndrome is, you can spend so much time, so much brain space, wasted, basically, on trying to problem-solve not being an imposter. And I suppose my coping mechanism is to try and ignore it and just focus on solving the problems that will make my business better and more valuable rather than constantly worrying about myself and my own performance. And I found that sort of the easiest way to, to tackle it. In fairness, you are a lot smarter than him, so maybe you're just getting compliments every time and <laughs> they're just actually insulting him and you're both switching the narrative. I wish that was true. Yeah. Uh, Debbie, what about you? I don't like this question because uh, the answer is no. <laughs> I don't. And I never have. Now, that, that's probably some sort of quirk and my personality but I think part of it is everyone in my family is an entrepreneur they wouldn't describe themselves as an entrepreneur so that's a very sort of fancy word but I grew up around everybody working for themselves in particular the women in my family my mum had her own business my grandma um, had a chain of sweet shops and off licenses I think it was just very normal a to see women running businesses and being mums and that being part of family life but I didn't have a single role model that went to work for someone else I didn't know anyone in my extended family who did that and so it just felt very normal that that's actually how life is and if I look at my siblings everybody works for themselves my brother works with me but still um, but my sister works for herself so I think that breeds a confidence and in particular this sense of What's the worst that can happen? And that's a sort of big mantra for me. But that doesn't mean that you don't face scary, intimidating, hardcore situations, whatever that might be, or difficult, problematic, awful situations, or we're really up against it situations. But I think that sense of what's the worst that can happen gives you an inner confidence that you can deal with that thing. And I think also 
just getting really, really used to public speaking is incredibly important. And I was lucky that I was a sort of kid debater and all that sort of stuff. But I think it, not everybody does that as a child. I think that is just practice. And it's one of the big messages in our book. Because not plugging. Anna, not plugging. But Anna, my co-founder hates public speaking you never know it now because i've just beaten it out of her because so much of what we have to do is our is the mm. debbie and anna show that she's just got used to it and and the point about her is when she used to have to stand up in front of people and talk she would dread it all day but it, practice does make perfect a because we we really know our material i mean you know it scratches and we bleed every statistical female entrepreneurship or that's just sort of <laughs> our you know stand-up comedy routine but anybody can learn how to feel confident and i think what women need to focus on perhaps more is it's okay to practice it doesn't need to be this effortless Boris Johnson standing out and reciting mm. Greek. Kind of, you know, it doesn't have to be that thing. You can practice. You should practice. Practice with your sisterhood. Practice in front of the mirror. Practice so that you don't feel like that. And, and, and you can change. You can change. That's the point. It's not just that's you for life. You can change how you feel about it. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. You set out to try and ruin my mum's birthday or whatever it is. There isn't a like bone in my body that would try to ruin anything for anybody like this. It's so far from my DNA. And to sort of hear that not only has that happened, which I'm like mortified about, but that people think I'm trying to do it deliberately or that I've like constructed a company that shouldn't exist. It's just so different to both my own personal DNA and to what I'm trying to achieve as a business. That was Aaron Gelbard, the CEO and founder of Bloom and Wild, the flowers and gifts giant that just raised over $100 million to scale out their smash hit brand internationally, having dominated the UK market since launch. Learn what he messed up along the way and the new challenges ahead for scale. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you're enjoying our show and you're happy to help us, please can you get out your phone right now and rate us on your favorite podcast player because that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.